Welcome to this sermon podcast from Myo Baptist Church, and thank you for listening to today's message. We pray that God's Word will be an encouragement to you and a reminder that the Bible has all the answers to living a successful and fulfilled life. Again, thanks for listening. We now join the service in progress. Being here tonight, we're going to continue in Joshua chapter 8 this evening. Joshua chapter 8. But before we get into Joshua chapter 8, it wouldn't be complete tonight without pastor vacation pictures. <laughs> hey, Scott, could you turn off these two lights up here, the, the spotlights? Recognize who that is? Barb Gould. That bar, it was we we. That's how we started the trip. When we left Sunday Easter Sunday, we we went down to where is she? Was it Fenton? Yeah, Fenton. And oh, but she's in a beautiful facility. I mean, this I don't know if it's I don't know if it's called a nursing home or whatever, but it's a beautiful one of the most beautiful ones I've been in. And I, I was so humbled by the fact she said, I couldn't sleep last night. I was so excited about you and Sharon coming to see me. I mean, that, that just melted. I, I love this lady dearly. And, but she's in good spirits, and she, she looked good. She sounded like she's on oxygen. We had a great time with her. And I don't even remember what pictures I have. The next one, can you see? How many of you are Andy Griffith fans? All right, you got to go to Mount Airy, North Carolina. On our way down to Myrtle Beach, we stopped in Mount Airy, and we had always heard that it was connected with Mayberry. Have you, had you heard that? Mount Airy, North Carolina, connected with Mayberry? And Sharon and I didn't know what the, the connection is. I mean, we walked in the motel that we were staying at that night, and there's a sign in the foyer that says, Welcome to Mayberry. We said, what, what? I've always heard that, but what's the connection? Well, Andy Griffith was born and raised in Mount Airy, North Carolina. It's a small town in the foothills. And a lot of Andy Griffith's shows are based on his experiences in Mount Airy. And on our trip, we were there one morning. That was probably one of the most enjoyable parts of the whole trip, our morning in in Mount Airy, because uh, Andy Griffith graduated from Mount Airy um, High School and it was a great time. They have a they have an Andy Griffith Museum, and there's a statue there of of Andy and and Opie, and it was just it was very much enjoyable. So we went to the museum, and then and, oh, and Thelma Lou, oh everybody knows Thelma. She lives in Mount Airy, and we talked to a young man that works there at the museum. He said well, you're going to miss her. I said what? He said she's ninety years old. Ninety? What do you remember? 91, 2, something like that. And she says she moved to Mount Airy to be near her fans because her house got robbed in Hollywood. So she moved to Mount Airy. She lives in an assisted living facility there. And he said every third Friday she shows up at the museum and she said she is, well, like they say about Barbara Bush, they said about her, Thelma, she's everybody's grandma. She said you can have your picture made with her. You can get her art. You can sit there and talk. She'll talk to you as long as you want to talk. And he said she is the sweetest lady in the world. So, but we we didn't get to meet Thelma Lou. Uh, but enjoyed Mount Airy. How many of you remember this? The side, Barney sidecar. Barney with. I wish I had my goggles, Sandy. I so badly. I got a pair of goggles. And they say that's one of the funniest episodes. Barney and his sidecar for his motorcycle. And they got that outside of the museum. 
And next, uh, Barney's Cafe. This is, this is downtown Mayberry, just like you would expect. And then they also, Floyd, Floyd's Barbershop. Floyd's Barbershop. I needed a haircut. We were there on Tuesday morning. And he's, 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 that's Floyd's son that runs the barbershop there. And he says, and he's the nicest guy. He said, I said, can I get my hair cut here? Floyd's Barbershop? I mean, like the greatest honor of my life, you know, to be in. He said, Andy Griffith parked it right there in that chair. He used to come in that chair and sit in that chair and get his hair cut when he was a youngster. But they were closed. I mean, he, he was open. There was a room full of people in there. And he loved telling about his dad, who, who was Floyd's Barbershop, was based on this barbershop. It's, it was built in 1928. And he said this is almost, it hadn't changed hardly at all in the last however many years that is. But that was, that was neat to go in Floyd's Barbershop. And next, that's in, um, that's, uh, a lot of you have been, where did we go? Myrtle Beach. Myrtle, that is like a 10-story Ferris wheel at Myrtle Beach. And Sharon wanted to go up in it. And I said, go. <laughs> you said you wouldn't go up in that Ferris wheel? There's not enough money. No, I'm not going up. You say, how did we end up at Myrtle Beach? When we've traveled the last year or two, you know, we went out to Texas last year. I, I like staying at Holiday Inn Expresses, and I told Sharon, I said, you know, I, I probably, they probably have some kind of thing. If you join it, you, you accumulate points, and you get a free night every so often. So I said, I like staying there. So, so I joined. It didn't cost anything. You join it, and yeah, you earn points. And then after so many points, you get a free night at the Holiday Inn Express. I said, well, it doesn't cost anything. Let's, let's do it. And they called me shortly thereafter, that same organization. And they said, we want to invite you to come to Myrtle Beach, and we'll give you three nights stay at a motel there. We'll give you $200 cash, and we'll give you a $100 gift certificate to use at another Holiday Inn Express. And I said, what's the catch? And they said, there is no catch. I said, no, there's a, there's a catch. I said, well, they said, you have to sit in on a two-hour timeshare thing. And I told the lady, I said, I ain't buying. She says, well, would you just come? I said, I- I'm not going to buy it. And we didn't. I said, I'm not going to buy it. She said, but she said, Please come. I said, all right. So that, that's how we ended up there. And they were true to their work. We did sit in on the two-hour thing. It was fascinating. And it wasn't really high pressure. You know, they, they, wanted, you, they wanted you to sign today. You know, this offer is today. And I told the guy, I said, we're not. <laughs> I said, I told the lady when she called. But they were, they were nice. They were gracious. And we, we enjoyed our time. The neat thing about being there, we had the beach to ourselves. We don't, we're not really beach people. But it was cold. It was cold, and I mean, you, there were people. Walk, there were people that were there like us that were going to walk on the beach anyway. Literally had blankets around them from their motel room. It was it was that chilly. But we had a couple days there. Never been there before, and don't know that I'd want to go back. That's Jason. Yeah, Jason, that's my hope. My future son-in-law, right there. <laughs> we met him for the first time. We had FaceTime with him. Nice guy. Very thoughtful, very godly, uh, considerate, uh, easy to visit with. Uh, doesn't call, you know, doesn't call a lot of attention to himself, but at the same time, comfortable to talk with, easy to talk with. Enjoy getting to know him. Next picture. You know you're in Louisiana when you go to the roadside park and it says, "Beware of snakes." 
that's not a joke. That's at one of the roadside parks. And I saw that. I said, folks back home got to see this. So I walked, I walked carefully over to the sign to take the picture. Because it's not a joke. That's a real warning sign. Okay, so you know you're in Louisiana when you see that or when you see this purple and gold LSU car. Is that the coolest car you've ever seen in your life? This Charger, purple and gold, LSU sticker on the back window? This guy, that's my mom. She didn't come tonight. She, I don't know that she'll be coming on Wednesday nights. Uh, she's pretty frail. But I wanted you to meet the... I wish I could take you and meet this guy right... This is Al. Al lives across the street from my mom. I don't know of a finer man around as far as you could have for a neighbor than Al. He loves my mom. He watches after her. He knows everybody in her subdivision. He cuts so many people's grass in that subdivision. He's one of the hardest working men I know. At night, he goes to, there's a Walmart distribution center, and he runs a forklift there from like 5 o'clock to 3 o'clock in the morning. He, he watches after my mom, and he, he told me. I'm, I'm not making fun of his accent, but he, told, he says, he said, he called me, he said, Glean, he said, I knows your mom's routine. And when the routine ain't there, he says, I go check. And he says, she knows mine. He's got a special knock. And she knows, he said, that's Al. Al comes over to check on me. I wish you could meet him. There's not a finer man around. I just love that guy. And whenever we pull up, he lives right across the street. And he's always working. He's out in his yard he, doing stuff all the time. And he, he knows me and my two brothers by name. We pull up, and he's like, hey, Glenn, good to see you. How long are you going to be? And he'll walk across the street. And he's, he's a model good neighbor. I just wanted you to, to see that guy. And lastly, this is my, you can't see it that well. Sp- spent one night with my brother. I wish you could see it in more detail. But he just lives in the most beautiful, old, that's a 100-year-old southern home surrounded by these beautiful oak trees. And it was just beautiful. It was sunshine. It was chilly. Uh, he grilled for us. We spent one night there. He grilled and said, y'all want to eat outside? Everybody said, no, it was that cold, even down in Louisiana. So you know you're in Louisiana, though, when you see the sunshine and the flowers. You also know you're in Michigan when... (laughs) That's my yard (laughs) and what your yard looks like and everybody else's yard looks like. All right, enough of that silliness. Let's, Let's get into something serious here tonight. Let's look at the next picture because this one is related. How many of you, that's a roundabout, right? They're starting to pop up. How many of you like them? How many of you hate them? I used to hate them, but I, that's better than sitting in traffic. And what an adventure to make it around and go, you know, I, I survive. There's one, they just put one in just down the street from where my mom lives. It's only been there a year or two. And, and I like them. You know, roundabouts are interesting. And once you get on, the question is, can you get off? And, and where do you get off? And sometimes life for us Christians is like a being on a roundabout. There are certain cycles in life that some Christians can find themselves in. And tonight in Joshua chapter 8, we're going to see something that plagues a lot of Christians. And we call it the, the cycle of sin, or you could call it the roundabout of sin either way. And One preacher describes it this way, and I quote, We have the tendency to commit sin, then repent, then give our devotion to God, then when all is well, we sin again, and we fall into bondage, and then later we repent 
and we get right, and God blesses, and then we, it becomes a cycle. And there's probably people in this room, most of us in this room, I don't know for sure, but I would say most of this room know exactly what I'm talking about here. This repetitive cycle, this roundabout of sin. It is particularly illustrated in the book of Judges. We're going to get to Joshua in a second. But this is particularly illustrated in the book of Joshua because it happens to the children of Israel numerous times when you read through the book of Judges. They are constantly going through this cycle or this roundabout. And it goes this way. Israel turns from God and serves idols. God turns Israel over to the oppressive surrounding nations. Israel turns to God and cries out for help. God raises up a judge to deliver them. And then rinse and repeat. Israel turns from God and serves idols, and there you go again. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's probably common to people. Let's read. Say This happens in Judges time and time again. I mean, it's a recurring uh, situation in the book of Judges. Let's just look at one example, Judges chapter 2. Let me read it to you quickly. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. Okay, there they go. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. That's what's going to happen. And they forsook the Lord and served uh, Baal and Asheroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he delivered them into the hands of the spoilers so that spoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of the enemies round about so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Verse number 15, Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them. Y- y- you notice, like the children of Israel, you, you, you do good for a while, then you start to slip. And if you're a child of God, he's not going to let you slip without making life very difficult. But then what happens is we get right with God, and if you're not careful, guess what? You start that cycle all over again. Temptations come along, and you give in, and you start that cycle over and over again. That, is, that was no way for the people of Israel to live. That's no way for us to live today. So, whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And then if you go ahead and read the remainder of the book of Judges, this cycle keeps happening time and time again. One writer says, you know, as it happens to nations, it happens to people. We have the tendency to commit sin, then repent, then give our devotion to God. Then when all is well, we sin uh, sin again, and we fall into bondage. It's no way to live the Christian life. Not these cycles. There should be be a a higher trajectory of, 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 of our growth. We start down here as baby Christians, and we want to be up here. And along the way, there, there, there's going to be some dips. There's going to be some missteps for, for all of us. There's going to be some, some backsliding. But th- these constant cycles, you, you just end up spinning your wheels. You, you never get up here. You, you, you're just in this cyclonic you know, depression of life, and that's, that's no way to live. Now, in Joshua chapter 8, where we are tonight, we, we see... What happens here? You know, Israel, remember, think back real quick, defeated. They come into the promised land. 
Their first opponent is Jericho, the great walled city. You know, they're living for the Lord. They're serving God. They're faithful. And they, they have a great victory there. Then they move on to the next battle against Ai. That's supposed to be an easy one. That's supposed to be a gimme. You know, and yet they lose that battle. And then they realize there's sin in the camp. And so they, they deal with the sin. And the sin is dealt with. And then we come to Joshua chapter 8. Now, they've already attacked Ai once. And they were defeated. They, they ran with their tail between their legs back, and they realized there was sin in the camp. And that's, again, this is going to turn into a cycle here. But in Joshua chapter 8, now, now they've, they've made things right with God. They determined, you know, Achan, he was the guilty party. They had to deal with that, which you have to do in your life. You have to deal with the sin. They dealt with the sin. Now we come to Joshua chapter 8. We don't need to read the whole chapter. I just want us to get the big picture. Here's what it says in verse number 1. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Now, they got to go back. You know, they failed in their first attempt with Ai. But they got to deal with Ai. So chapter 8, the Lord's giving them instructions. Okay, this time, they got to get it right. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear not, neither be thou dismayed. Take all the people of war with thee. Last time, they only took 3,000. They said, We got these guys. This is a piece of cake. You know, we don't need everybody. Leave everybody, just take 3,000. That didn't work. So now the Lord says, take all the people of war with thee. Arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given unto thy hand the king of Ai and his people and his city and his land. And thou shalt do to Ai and her king as thou didst unto Jericho and her king. Only the spoil thereof and the cattle thereof shall ye take for a prey unto yourselves. Lay thee an ambush for the city behind it. And again, I remind you, and I think this is a very important point, when you think about them destroying an entire city and everybody that was in there, it's not because they were in the way. It's because it was God's judgment. Remember the, uh, the, the, the woman that, that hid the spies, uh, the, the, the harlot? You know, she repented. She got right with God. She heard the stories, and so did these people. They didn't get right. This is not because they're in the way. It's not because they're an inconvenience that the Lord is going to, to deal with them harshly. It's because of their unrepented, their hard hearts, their obstinance towards God. In verse number 3, So Joshua rose and all the people of war to go up against Ai, and Joshua chose out 30,000 men uh, of valor. They're going to get it right this time. And sent them away by night. And he commanded them, saying, Behold, ye shall lie and wait against the city, even behind the city. Go not very far from the city, but ye shall be ready. Joshua is told by God, take everybody. But it was up to Joshua to sort out the details. So God says, you take everybody, okay? And God's going to give the victory, but it's, Joshua, the leader, has some leeway. And, and that's often how the Lord works with his, his, he gives pastor's direction, whatever, but a lot of times he, he leaves the details up to the pastors, you know, I, I want you to win people and, pre- and preach the gospel to everybody, and then the Lord lays it on my heart, you know, Easter Sunday. By the way, thank you. I thought Easter Sunday is my first chance to tell you personally. I thought Easter Sunday was great. I thought there was a great spirit. I thought you folks did a, a great job. So thank you for that. Anyway, back to the story. So Joshua is going to come up with the battle plan. And, and listen to this battle plan. Uh, uh, verse number 5. And I and all the people that are with me. Now he breaks them up into two groups. His army is going to be divided into two groups. I and all the people with me will approach unto the city. The other half of his army is hidden. Okay? They don't know in Ai the other half of the army is out there. He's going to be very open about the half that he's leading. 
I and all the people that are with me will approach into the city, and it shall come to pass when they come out against us as at the first, as they did the first time, that we will flee from them. For they will come out after us. I imagine the people at Ai say, oh, look who's here again. Look at this. You know, we're going to have to run them off. And so he says, we're going to approach from the front. They will come out after us thinking, we'll just take care of them like we did the first time. Till we have drawn them from the city. For they say, they will flee from us as at the first. Therefore, we will flee before them. Then ye shall rise up. This is the hidden group. Okay. Again, he says, I'm going to take half the army. We're going to approach the city. When they see us, they're going to think we can take care of these guys again like we did the first time. They're going to come out to do battle with us, and we're going to pretend to run. We're going to pretend to retreat, and they're going to think we're going to, we got them again. And they're going to come after us, and when they come after us, the hidden army, you're going to go in, and you're going to take the city, and you're going to burn it, and now we got them surrounded. They've got no place to retreat to. Verse number 7. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize upon the city, for the Lord your God will deliver it into your hand. And it shall be when ye have taken the city that ye shall set the city on fire according to the commandment of the Lord. Ye shall do it. See, I have commanded you. And that plan worked to perfection. But I want you to look at the big picture. We talked about judges and how you have this constant cycle of sin. You see that cycle demonstrated here in Joshua through the first eight, uh, eight chapters. Let, let's look at the cycle of sin as it's portrayed here in the book of Joshua. They start off with, the people of Israel start off with commitment. They followed God's plan. He gave them instructions, remember, about crossing the Jordan. And he gave them instructions about marching around Jericho. They, they demonstrate this commitment. God told them what to do, and they did it. They're living in obedience to God. And God blessed them with conquest. Jericho was defeated. But then came a problem. Compromise. Achan. He knew the instructions. Don't take any of the spoils. He thought he could do it. He thought he could get away with it. And all people that compromise think that. That, you know... He doesn't really mean it, or that doesn't apply to me, or I know better. You know, I see it differently. So there came compromise. Achan felt like he could take some of the spoils of war. And then came, on top of that, complacency. Israel felt they only needed 3,000 men to defeat Ai. And that didn't work. Second time, Lord said, take all the men of war into battle. So we see compromise and complacency. And, of course, that led to collapse. And Israel... The first time they went to battle with Ai was dealt this humiliating defeat. But then comes confession. They realized what the problem was. There was sin in the camp. And they dealt with that. And then the Lord blessed and there was conquest. And the second time around, they defeated Ai. That cycle of sin, oftentimes many people find themselves doing the exact same thing. There's initial commitment, and there's conquest. You know, I'm growing in the Lord, I'm doing well. And if you're not careful, you can compromise, you can become complacent. And when that happens, things just collapse around you. Your, your life collapses. You know, there's problems with, 
with relationships. There's problems with kids. There can be problems in the job. The Lord's not going to let his children rebel without him chastening them. And thankfully, that will often lead then to confession. You get right, and then, you know, you, you begin to conquer Conquer the sin and experience the blessings of God. So the question would be then, if, you experience, if you're experiencing cycles like this, then what, what, do you, what do you do about it? And I've given that some thought as it relates to the Scripture, and I think it's a simple answer. Stop it where it starts. Stop it with the compromise. Don't compromise. Stop the complacency. Don't get complacent. Don't get lazy. Don't compromise by saying, you know, I can go to church on Sunday and I can hit the nightclub on, on Friday. It that, that's, that's compromise. That is not going to work. Complacency, I don't need to read my Bible every day. That's, that's, for, you know, that's for the pastor and deacons and people that want to do that thing. I works for them. That's fine. That doesn't work for me. No, if you're not going to, if you want to stop that cycle, then you got to stop it where it starts, with the complacency and with the compromise. Compromise, you know, was when Achan took the spoils of war there at Jericho. And the Bible warns us about compromise. James 4, 17, Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. If you know what to do and you don't do it because of whatever rationale you've come up with, you know, that's sin. And there's no sugarcoating that. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's compromise. I like to hang around with the nightclub crowd, the, the, the party crowd. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? So stop it where it often starts. Don't compromise. And people will always explain it away. And sometimes, and this infuriates me, to be honest, under the guise of being spiritual. Well, we're not, I'm not a legalist like you are. You're just a compromiser. I mean, that's, that's what they do. And that just, can I be honest, it just galls me. Now, let me be more spiritual. It troubles my soul. You know, when people under the guise of spirituality justify worldliness, and they do it all the time, especially this day and age. D.A. Carson says this about compromise. People, listen to this, people do not drift towards holiness. If you're going to get lax and slack, you're not going to drift towards being more righteous. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. People stop going to church and, you know, they don't become more spiritual. They don't become closer to the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. That's, that's putting a spiritual veneer on worldliness. That's all it is. And there's nothing else I can tell you about that. And 
especially in, in the modern church today, I, I'm seeing more and more articles about pastors that are concerned about the worldliness of churches, the worldliness of the pastoral leadership in those churches, because they're afraid to take a stand. They're not doing their congregation any good. They're certainly not doing the cause of Christ any good. This other gentleman, I can't pronounce his last name, he says, Dear friends, let us shake off the intoxication of compromise. Too many of us are entertained by the things we should weep over. God destroyed the world during Noah's day because of violence, and yet we sit before televisions and in theaters amused by violence. The Lord ultimately destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their twisted morality, yet we do nothing to protest similar perversity entering our lands. If you want to stop the cycle, stop it where it starts. And oftentimes it starts with compromise, if not compromise, then complacency. But with the compromise, recognize it when you see it and resist it. With complacency, and we're done, the Bible warns about complacency. Revelation 3.16, So then because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. It is not okay to, to be complacent. It is not okay to not be on guard. Which, 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. A couple quotes about being complacent. The spiritually complacent Christian is smug and overconfident before God. He does not repent. He does not actively seek God. He does not strive through his grace to serve him more faithfully and follow him more closely. It's a dangerous thing to become a complacent Christian. Oh, the, and, and again, they put it under the guise of a higher spirituality. Well, they may need Wednesday night. They may need Sunday school. You know, me be alone with the Lord out in the woods reading my Bible. That is quite sufficient. No, that is, that is being dangerously complacent. And then this quote, complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. That's A.W. Tozer. The contented soul is the stagnant soul. We need to have a holy, grace-filled dissatisfaction with who we are. Constant. Because we are always prone to drift into worldliness, drift into compromise, drift into complacency. We need to have a spiritual alertness about us that is on guard to these things. Don't get complacent. Again, you recognize it and you resist it. And I could go into the particulars of how to do that, but this Wednesday, you know that. Be in church when the doors are open. Be around good, godly people. Stay away from compromisers, those that are complacent, and certainly those that are unsaved. You know, by all means, have your devotions daily. And again, there's no strict formula for how that's done. You know, over the years, I'll do devotions one way, and maybe that gets a little stale sometimes, and I'll change it up. I've just changed it up recently, what I've been doing for a couple, a couple years. And you've got to keep it fresh. But, but do that, because it's that important to be in God's Word daily. So again, it, it, to keep from being complacent, to keep from 
compromise, you know, be in church. Be around godly people. Stay away from things that feed the flesh and people that feed the flesh. And, you know, be much in prayer. And that, that's, that's the way it works. We'll close with this last quote from John Flavel. He lived, I think it was in the 1600s. He was a Puritan in England. He said, the keeping of the heart is a work that is never done till life is ended. The keeping of the heart is a work that is never done till life is ended. And if you start compromising or getting complacent, you know, well, I used to go. You hear people, I used to go on Wednesday nights. I I used to teach Sunday school. I used to have devotions. Uh, And again, under the guise of spiritual maturity, but I've grown in the Lord. And, you know, I don't need that anymore. And how's your life going for you? Not very well. Again, judges, the book of Judges, read it for yourself. You see that cycle repeated time and time again. In the first eight chapters of Joshua, there's a, that's a beautiful illustration of that cycle. Man, they start off well, and look where they end up. And then they get right, and then, you know. So how do you stop that cycle if it's a problem that you face, that maybe all of us face? Be aware of complacency. Be aware of compromise. Do not go there. The world will not appreciate your commitment. Backslidden Christians will not appreciate your commitment. Carnal, worldly Christians, which the world is seeing much more of, they will probably be the most outspokenly critical of you in the guise of a greater spirituality that they have come to know because they're not legalists anymore. You will be criticized, but you will more be blessed. You will more be blessed. Thank you for listening to today's message. We hope that the service was a blessing to you and that you were encouraged by God's Word. If you have any questions about Myo Baptist Church, please contact us anytime. You can find contact information on our website at myobaptistchurch.com. Thanks for listening.